Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah? All right, good. It's good to see you all. Um, happy Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I know that a number of you might have missed the uh, initial reading that uh, Carly led us in at the beginning of the service. One more reason to be here on time. Vineyard time, on time, every time. That's how we do it. And, uh, and Pentecost is uh, the celebration of something that happened uh, shortly after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, he, he, there was a room full of disciples that were uh, gathered in a prayer meeting, and suddenly they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the early church was born. You see, after Jesus' resurrection, when he was about to ascend to heaven, he gathered together all of his followers, and he said, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He said, wait, don't go take this message, this gospel that we've been preaching about the kingdom of God. Don't go take it out to, to the surrounding community yet. Instead, I want you to wait, gather, pray, and then you're going to receive the power of God in your life. And that's going to drive you and propel you to go basically change the world. And that's what they did. So a group of Jesus followers stayed in Jerusalem. They prayed in an upper room. Um, there is special power, apparently, being in the upper room. Balconians, you guys get it. You guys get it first. The Holy Spirit hits up there first. And so one morning, while they were in prayer and worship, gathered together a, a, a group of people about the size of this room right here to, today, um, Suddenly, the room that they were in was filled with this rushing wind, and little, little flames of fire rested on each person's head, and they began to speak in other languages, speak in tongues. And this moment caused a huge stir in the city. Uh, people surrounding just heard this, like, noisy wind and this weird uh, cacophony of various languages all sort of being shouted from a room, and they, they started to gather around close by. And as they gathered nearer and nearer, each person was able to hear the glory of God, the gospel being declared uh, in their own language, even though they came from all parts of the region um, and had various languages. And Peter stood up and he preached a sermon, shared the gospel, and in the first day that the church was born, 3,000 people were saved in one morning. And that morning was the beginning of a movement that would spread throughout the rest of the region, throughout the rest of the ancient world, and change the world completely as we know it. And what we see is that throughout the book of Acts, we read about time after time when the church gathered together in prayer, and then suddenly the power of God was released. In Acts chapter 3, we read about how uh, John and Peter were arrested and that the church gathered together to pray for them. And while they were praying, they didn't just pray for the release of their friends. They prayed that in the face of persecution that the church would receive boldness to continue preaching even though they were suffering. And as they were praying, suddenly the building that they were in physically started to shake under the power of God. We see it again in Acts chapter 13. The leaders of a church in the city of Antioch were gathered together to pray and worship and fast. And as they were gathered, the Holy Spirit came upon them very suddenly. And then a prophetic commissioning of Paul and Barnabas went forth, sending them out on a missionary journey that would plant churches all throughout the region of Turkey and beyond. We see over and over again through the scriptures that when God's people pray, revival follows. And then we see this again and again throughout history. Is anybody here, like, excited about revival or read about historic revivals? 
amazing stories throughout history, uh, the history of the church. And every move of God is preceded by the prayers of his people. We saw this in the Moravian movement with Count Zinzendorf, which is such an amazing name. That, and this, this prayer that, that came from the church, it launched a global missions movement and it resulted in a hundred year long, nonstop, 24-7 prayer meeting. We see the centrality of prayer that happened before both the first and the second great awakenings. We see Charles Finney, a famous evangelist and revivalist, and every time that he was getting ready to go to a city, he would send a few of his intercessors, notably a guy named Nash, Daniel Nash, and he would send him ahead into the city, and this guy would pray for like 10, 12, 14 hours a day, crying out for God to move in the city so that when Finney came in, suddenly revival would just break out. We see this with David Brainerd in the upper northeast of the United States as he's preaching to indigenous peoples up there, and he would gather the church together in prayer, and then he would go and lay in a log in the snow overnight, praying and contending for revival among these people, and just miracles, signs, and wonders followed. Strangely enough, he also died of tuberculosis, probably had nothing to do with laying in a log in the snow overnight. Um... But, but the pattern is undeniable. God moves in response to the prayers of his people. We see this all the way up through history, and we see this even right here in this church that you and I are sitting in. We are the result of the passionate intercession of a couple dozen people who would gather every single night of the week in the home of Stephen Lane Fish to cry out to God for revival in their city. They were contending for a move of God in the city of Vancouver and in Clark County. And that during that time of nightly prayer meetings, God spoke clearly to Stephen Lane and said that if, if they were to continue to pray for Clark County, God would birth a church from their prayers and that prayer would always be at the center of it. And you and I are sitting right here in this congregation today because of those prayers. Our church just turned 30 this year. And I want to take this Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, to call us to, as a, as a church, as a community, to recommit ourselves to the vision that God birthed this church with. We are a praying church. And if we do nothing else in this city, we will always be a church that prays, that labors in intercession. Do we love life groups and building community in our congregation? Of course. Do we love discipleship and formation, seeing people equipped through the, the word of God to become more and more like Jesus? Absolutely. Do we love the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit as we worship, uh, as we have nights of worship and encounter, and as we take our hands out of our pockets and lay them on somebody else and expect God to do healing? Do we love that? For sure, to the end, do we care about reaching the lost and commit, are we committed to acts of justice in our city? Absolutely. But if you want to connect to the heart of our humble little church, if you want to know what's really happening and what's really burning in the soul of this community, there is only one space where you will find it. That is in our prayer meetings. In fact, I think that you could come to every single one of our pastor's meetings, every single one of our elder board meetings, and you will not catch the heart of our church nearly as much as if you come to the prayer meetings. At least this is our aim. This is what we are chasing after. 
And that the fact is that even though we have this vision, this hunger, this DNA that was given to us from a previous generation, there is still a gap between where we are today and where we feel like God is calling us. And I think that God is calling us to a fresh resolve to become more fully who it is that we already are. Amen? So I want to call us again today by telling the story of a little community out in the middle of nowhere that experienced a powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit way back in the year 1949. And uh, this is known as the Revival in the Hebrides, which was led by a man named Duncan Campbell. So have any of you read this book, Revival in the Hebrides? Put your hand up if you read this book. Dennis, predictably. (laughs) Good job, Dennis. Now for the rest of you, we're going to do a little book report, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to tell the story of the revival in the Hebrides. It's a little bit weird. Instead of teaching from the Bible, we're going to just share a story. But before we get into the story, I think that's important for us to clarify what we mean when we talk about renewal or revival or awakening. These are really strange words that if you were to ask anybody across the church in any given church in our city what these words mean, everybody would have a slightly different definition, which makes it kind of hard to nail down what it is that we're talking about when we use these words. And so I just want to, I'm just going to reference a a framework that was uh, shared by uh, Pastor John Tyson out in New York City. Uh, I don't think it's the definitive definition, but I think that it's a really helpful framework. What is it that we mean when we talk about awakening? And what are the stages? What are the steps that lead to awakening? First, the first stage that we need to talk about is regeneration. And so regeneration is uh, when we first experience God in our lives. This is when we are convicted of sin. This is when our eyes are first open to spiritual realities. Uh, This is when we become become aware of our need for God. And so in regeneration, we experience the forgiveness of our sin, and we experience new life with Christ in the kingdom of God. We become what Romans 8 calls a new creation. And so regeneration is in many ways just a personal experience of revival, which leads us to the second stage, which is restoration. That as we surrender our lives to Jesus, as we become these new creation, God begins to restore to us the things that were lost or broken because of our sin or because of the sin that was committed against us or because of generational things that had been passed down to us. God begins to restore our lives from the brokenness that we had lived in. He repairs us so that we no longer have to live according to our old sinful ways. And as he restores us, this brings us into the third stage, which is reformation. And this is the point in our Christian walk when formation really kicks into overdrive. This is where we see beyond just the obvious sin that's in our lives, but all the way to the condition of our heart. We begin to walk in the fruit of the Spirit as he changes us more and more into the image of Christ. This is where we start to discover our spiritual gifts and how it is that God has called us to function in the church and beyond. This is where we start to get little glimmers of what it is that he has uniquely called each one of us into so that we can and live our lives according to that. This is where we see real spiritual maturity beginning to develop. And as we see more and more people experiencing this, this reformation, when you get a church that is full of people who are all, all experiencing that, you'll start to see the early stages of renewal. 
This is where you see a collective hunger for the presence of God manifest in the church. It's where you start to see the gifts of the Spirit at work and cross-pollinating with each other so that the teaching gifts are flowing alongside the faith gifts and that are all encouraged by revelatory gifts and the church is sort of starting to click into place and to become the body that we're meant to be. You see, the church starts to buzz with the power and the presence of God. And it's so exciting when you start to see the signs of renewal. And renewal can take all different kinds of forms along a spectrum of experience. Some renewals stay just within the local body, the local congregation, or maybe it's just sort of within a city among a few churches. Sometimes renewal spreads and it's translocal and, it, and you can see it sort of the, the same marks in this church taking place over here and over here and over here, not just in one city, but in across a region or across the nation. And there are different kinds of renewals that we, we begin to see uh, happening. Sometimes there's a theological renewal where God begins to highlight and reintroduce uh, to the church a really key or core theological idea that, that sets us on a new course. Maybe not a new one, but just renewing something that's important. There are charismatic renewals where the Spirit's manifest presence is thick and he's releasing the gifts to his people. There are renewals of justice where God confronts collective and historical sin and brings uh, reconciliation or stirs up conviction for justice and the care for the marginalized. You see different expressions all throughout history. And when you see the early signs of renewal, it's so exciting. It starts to feel like the air is electric, which then brings us to the next one, which is revival, everybody's favorite word. Jonathan Edwards, a famous pastor, uh, describes revival as the acceleration and intensification of God's activity. And so sometimes we refer to revival as experiencing the harvest that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 9. This is where the amount of people who would normally come to Christ in 20 years come to Christ in like a month. The slow work of the Spirit speeds up dramatically, and it begins to feel like the story of when Jesus calls his disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And when they do, suddenly they're hauling in such a catch that they, they're not even prepared for. Their nets start to break. Revival is rare. The reason that we read stories of revivals is to encourage us in the very ordinary times of slow work. They're uncommon, I think, because the cost of revival and preparation for revival is so steep, few churches and regions are really set their hand to it. And then finally, the last stage is awakening. And this is where the power of renewal in the church spills out into revival in the streets, which leads to a dramatic convulsion in the culture. It's not just a time of, of a lot of individual salvations. It's where culture is transformed by the powerful work that the Holy Spirit is doing. It, the result is the transformation of a society. And this ultimately is what we are aiming for. This is what we see in, in instances like the Clapham sect, who prayed and gave themselves to the emancipation of slaves and for the dismantling of an entire economic system that was based on the oppression of other human beings. This is what we see in, in the revival that took place in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, when the pagan religious establishment was so threatened by revival that it led to cultural and economic e upheaval, even a riot in the streets. This is what happened 
in the Jesus People revival. Some of you, some of you might have even been saved in that revival back in the, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, when many young people were brought to Christ out of the, the sort of countercultural and hippie movement. And when we read about awakening, when we read about renewal, revival, and awakening, I think that our hearts come alive and we begin to cry out the same prayer that we read in Habakkuk chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, and in our time make them known. When I read the scriptures and I read these stories of God's power being poured out in regions and churches being planted and the church going forth and having influence across their community, when I read about these stories of missions movements that are born and hundred-year prayer meetings that are launched among the Moravians, when I read these stories about the first and second great awakening, my heart starts to come alive and I find myself praying the prayer of Habakkuk, do it again, Lord, renew it in our day. Now, when we look at our church, I, I think that we have not yet even begun to taste revival or awakening. Over the years in the history of our church, we've had seasons where we've experienced renewal. We felt the, the stirring of the Holy Spirit for the harvest. We've had these extravagant uh, meetings that are full of all kinds of signs and wonders, but we've yet to see God break through in revival through our church. We've yet to see the harvest being brought in, souls being saved. And I think that that's really what we want, amen? Do, do we? <laughs> Thank you. I believe that right now, as a humble little community, we land somewhere in roughly the deeper, deeper stages of reformation. I think that God is doing something beautiful in the individual hearts of our people right now. I think that he is stirring us up for a move of God. We can start to see the water tremoring before it begins to boil. I just feel that way right now when I look across our church. And this excites me. It excites me because we saw these same early tremors in churches of another small out-of-the-way community in the Hebrides. And if God can do something spectacular in 1949 in the Hebrides, I'm convinced he could even do something spectacular here. So, the story of the Hebrides. We're just going to do a really quick overview of it. I really encourage you to get the book by Duncan Campbell, Revival in the Hebrides. You could read it in like two hours. Super fast, really, really powerful. But the Hebrides are a series of islands uh, off the coast of Scotland. And so when, when we say that the Hebrides is out of the way, we mean literally not on the way to anything. <laughs> it is so out of the way. Um, and in 1949, on the island of Lewis, some of the older members of the congregation uh, started to become concerned about the next generation of the church. There was literally no young people in any of the congregations nearby. And God gave them a burden. He started to put this on their hearts as something that they couldn't live with. They could not deal with it anymore. Where are the young people? Why is the next generation not serious about Jesus? And this is always the first thing that God does. He gives his people a burden. He starts to open their eyes to the true state of things, and they become discontent, and they just can't shake it. Something has to change. And so in this story, two elderly sisters in particular received this burden, Christy and Peggy McLeod. McLeod. 
I, I don't do a Scottish accent. I'm sorry. These two sisters, they were 82 and 84, and one of them was blind, and they were unable to make it to church services on the weekends uh, because they were just too old. It was just hard. So they set themselves to prayer. They can't make it to church. They can still pray. And one of these sisters, while she was praying, she received this vision from the Lord of the local church being packed full of young people. And she believed that this was a prophecy that God was on the verge of bringing revival. And so at that, at that time, again, not one young person was in the church. And so she sent for the local minister, and she told him about her vision. And he was like, cool, what do we do about that? And she looks at him, and she's like, what, what are you talking about, what do we do about that? Um, oh, no. Here we go. What are you talking about? She said this, give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to waiting upon God. Get your elders and your deacons together and spend at least two nights a week waiting upon God. And then she goes on to say, and we will pray with you. If we can't make it physically to the prayer meeting, we will stay in our house and we will pray all night with you. So the minister and the elders join these sisters in prayer a few nights a week in a barn with a straw floor praying for revival from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. No heat, no comfy furniture, no background music, no gas fireplace. And when they were doing these prayer meetings, the Lord began to speak to them, and he gave them a promise from Isaiah 44, verse 3. And this is it. He said, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And so they, they, they heard this word from Isaiah 44, and they clung to it. It became the prayer that they prayed night after night for hours and hours into the middle of the night. And for three months, they held these prayer meetings, and nothing happened. In fact, we read that the prayer meetings weren't even good. They were like dry and boring and hard and long and exhausting. Not a glimmer of hope that their prayers were doing anything. But but under the surface, God was beginning to do a work in their hearts. He was calling them into an experience of personal examination, addressing the sin in their own lives. And so one night, one of the deacons felt God led him to Psalm 24, a famous uh, passage you all know, where the psalmist writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And we read that he closes his Bible, and he looks at everybody, and he says, It seems to me so much humbug to be waiting as we are waiting, to be praying as we are praying, when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. It sounds better in a Scottish accent. Then he lifted his hands towards heaven, and he prayed, Oh God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And suddenly he went to his knees and he fell into a trance for the rest of the night. And, when they, and then when he and others started to, to experience the weight of God's conviction on themselves, the whole prayer meeting like just exploded in the presence of God. Now, at this time, there was a minister named Duncan Campbell who was not on the Isle of Lewis. He was actually on the mainland of Scotland. And the sisters felt this urgent need that they needed him to come to the island of Lewis. So they sent for him, and, and, he, and he said, no, thank you. <laughs> like, does not sound like a great assignment. But the sisters prayed him over anyway. They got their way. So, so Duncan Campbell arrives at this town called Barvas, 
and he is met by um, one of the members of the congregation who escorts him to a small and simple prayer meeting. And he's exhausted. He's been traveling all day. He doesn't want to be there, but he, he gets up and he shares a really simple gospel message. It's kind of nice, whatever. And then he closes his Bible and he says, all right, can we please go back to my, to my room now? I need to go get some sleep. So he's walking through down the aisle and the same deacon who had prayed Psalm 24 just begins to shout in the middle of the room, God, you can't fail us. You can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods on the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. And suddenly, boom, the room was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And everybody just falls out. And, and we read that there's a shock wave that actually goes out from the building, and the Holy Spirit starts to move in all the surrounding town and village. And they have this really amazing experience. And, and then after a while, around 11 p.m., they, they go outside to head home. And they find that more than 600 people are standing outside the building holding lanterns at 11 o'clock at night. Like some of them, had, the bars had all emptied. Um, some people had woken up from their sleep, put on their clothes, and just walked out towards the church. Revival was breaking out. And they're like, wow, this is so amazing. And so then... Uh, and this meeting at the church, it goes on all the way to 4 a.m. And so as they're leaving the house to get some sleep, uh, they're, they're walking along, and suddenly another young man runs up to Duncan Campbell, and he says, you need to come to the police station. <laughs> and he's like, what? Why? Why do I need to come to the police station? And, and the young man says, more than 400 people have suddenly and spontaneously gathered there, and they're waiting for you to preach. you got to come preach at the police station. <laughs> So he walks to the police station, and as he's walking along, there's just like bodies in the field and in the ditch. People are crying out to God for salvation. Just this incredible night, right? But it wasn't limited to this one church. It was a movement that kept going. And so this was flowing across the island. Shortly after that night, another church was suddenly full of young people at one in the morning. All of the bars and dance halls emptied out. They all wandered to a church, and somebody says, go tell Duncan Campbell, wake him up. And so he got up and had to walk to this other church in another town and preach at one in the morning because a whole bunch of people were waiting for him. We see that spontaneous prayer meetings begin to occur because the buildings are so full that young people can't get into them. Um, and, and Duncan Campbell recalls this one moment. He says, one old woman complained about the noise of these meetings because she couldn't get to sleep. And a deacon grabbed her and shook her, saying, woman, you've been asleep long enough. <laughs> I, I, just, I love that. In another town on the island, they requested that Duncan Campbell come and again preach, but he just didn't feel any leading to go. And he was in this prayer meeting again with those two old Scottish sisters. And, um, and one of the sisters looks at him and says, if you were close to God at all, you would know that this is the Lord. And then she prophesied that seven men were going to be saved when he arrived. So... He went to this place. He got there. The room was packed. More than 400 people crowded in. And he preached a simple message. And the, the power of God was at work in the room. And then the leaders of the church pointed to a corner where seven of the most notorious members of their community were all weeping under the conviction of the Spirit. All seven of them become leaders in the movement. One of the powerful marks of the Hebrides revival was that it wasn't driven by just one man's gift or personality. Duncan Campbell seems to be at the center of it, but that's only because he was the guy that wrote the book. Wrote the book. Um, 
but that when we, when we read these accounts, God raises up other unlikely leaders to do his work. In fact, on a trip to a neighboring island, Duncan Campbell found that the people were resistant to God. He couldn't get the breakthrough. It just, the meeting was dead and dry and boring, and it's like everybody had their arms crossed and just weren't interested. So he sent for the 17-year-old young man named Donald, who had been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit just a couple of weeks before. This kid was in touch with God. And so he sits in the front row listening to Duncan Campbell preach. And while everybody else has their arms folded and they're uninterested, this young man, he had tears streaming down his face. And so Duncan Campbell stops preaching because it seems to be going nowhere. And instead, he asked Donald to come up and pray. And as Donald stood there, he said, I seem to be gazing into an open door and see the lamb in the midst of the throne and the keys of death and hell on his waist. And he began to sob. And a moment later, he composed himself and he said, God, there is power there. Let it loose here. And suddenly the presence of God filled the room and it swept across the congregation from one side of the room to the other. And many people suddenly threw their hands in the air and their head back like this and held this position for more than two hours, like something that you couldn't possibly do on your own. And there were reports that that same night, spontaneous salvations were happening in homes across, even in other villages, 5, 10, 15 miles away. But yet, even though all of this was happening in this island, there was still one place that was difficult. It was a village called Arnel. And it was really wrestling with all of this revival business. You see, they wanted the fruit of revival. They wanted to experience, like, this wave of young people having salvation. But, man, it seemed pretty messy. And all of this Holy Spirit stuff seemed really suspect to them. But there were a few leaders in the congregation who were really hungry for a move of God. And so they sent for Duncan Campbell and said, please just come and join us at this prayer meeting. So he arrived to join in the prayer meeting one night. And while they were in prayer, one of the deacons, who was a local blacksmith, stood up and prayed this prayer. Oh God, you made a promise to pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. He paused and then continued in a rising voice. Lord, I do not know how Mr. Campbell or these other men stand with you, but if I know my own heart, I know I am thirsty. You have promised to pour water on him who is thirsty. If you don't do it, how can I ever believe you again? Your honor is at stake. You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. And after he finished praying, they were in this granite house, totally made of stone. And where the place where they were meeting, it literally began to shake like the book of Acts. And the power of God was unleashed across the village. The power filled the room, and everyone inside was gripped by wave after wave of manifest presence as it crashed over them. And again, the local bar and the dance hall emptied out as young people poured out in the conviction of the Spirit. Work stopped on the island because of such an awareness of the Spirit fell on them. They were on holy ground in this moment. Your honor is at stake, is what this blacksmith prayed. What a prayer. This is what writers on intercession call the prayer of importunity. It's a shamelessness in prayer. It's the chutzpah 
to call God to fulfill his promises. E.M. Bounds, who writes on prayer very famously, he wrote this. He said, he prays not at all who does not press his plea. Cold prayers have no claim on heaven and no hearing in the courts above. Fire is the life of prayer. And heaven is reached by flaming importunity rising in an ascending scale. God delights in the holy boldness that won't take no for an answer. God celebrates this kind of faith. And God moves at the prayers of his people. Now, this is like just a, a really short, tiny taste of the stuff that happened in the revival in the Hebrides. I really encourage you to go get the book and read it for yourself. It was a profound move of God that swept through most, the most out-of-the-way place at the result of the simple prayers of faithful people. And it all started with a burden. It all started with a few leaders who took note of the fact that this church is probably going to die out unless young people come. And my friends, I say all that to say, I think that God has been giving us a burden over the last uh, really year, year and a half or so, especially. I think that God is really starting to awaken us to the true state of things, and he is calling us as a church to pray. Over the last couple of years, I have talked with many pastors uh, and asked this question, has there ever been a time that you can think of that was harder to lead than now? And every pastor says the same thing. <laughs> no. Like, there's never been a harder time to lead the church. There's never been a harder time uh, to exist in this cultural climate. Some of the super old pastors will say the 60s were pretty rough, too. And that actually gives me a lot of encouragement, knowing that the 60s were this hard. Because what happened out of the 60s in the midst of just the tense cultural climate that we had is that God birthed a profound awakening that we call the Jesus People Movement. It was, a, it was a time where thousands upon thousands of the most lost and confused young people were radically saved right here in America. People so lost. I'm talking about lost people like Steve Fish. <laughs> like God even got him in that movement. It was a modern awakening. The need of the hour is awakening. Our generation desperately needs it, and we are not ready the only space for preparation, I believe, is the prayer meeting. Seriously. And look, there are times, there are seasons where the ordinary slow work of discipleship and community, joining a life group, going to a Bible class, doing Sunday school, serving the community on a weekly basis, those are all beautiful, powerful things for forming us. But I'm increasingly con convinced that as I look at the climate of the world that we live in, that the need of the hour is more than ordinary Christianity. There is a special need today for revival, for renewal, for awakening. There is a, a special need today for the church to gather and pray. And I'm coming to you this morning to say, we need more intercessors. We need more intercession in this church. We have six prayer meetings a week right now. And it's beautiful. And it's small, and God celebrates it. And I'm, with any authority that God has given me as a pastor, I'm calling us as a church, we need more intercessors.